Church, I would invite you to open your Bibles today. We are going to be in the Gospel of John, starting in verse uh, or chapter 13. We're going to be in a little longer series right now. We're going to be in a series that's going to last from now all the way up until Thanksgiving. And this is one of the longest sections of teaching that Jesus has that's at least recorded in the Scriptures And it's called the Upper Room Discourse. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. The longest section of teaching, if you look at volume of words, is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, This is the second longest that we have of Jesus. And again, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus invites his disciples together. They're going to have a final meal together And then he is going to go to a cross. And so this is the last moment before his death. They don't quite know that yet, but that's what's lining up. And this is his last words to his disciples. Here's what's really interesting. If you look at a timeline, John has chapters 1 through 12 that span two years. So it's a a kind of a move rather quickly through the life of the ministry of Jesus We get to chapter 13, and it's like the camera slows down and just stays in one spot for a long period of time because it's just a number of hours that they're their upper room, but that's, again, chapters 13 all the way to 17. And so, again, John is saying these are really important things that Jesus said and did, and I want to make sure and capture those for you if you're a reader of his gospel. Now, again, this is called the Upper Room Discourse because it's held in the, drumroll, Upper Room. And that is a location in Jerusalem. It was a house that was actually borrowed from somebody. We don't quite know who. And it's still a spot that exists in Jerusalem today. In fact, I have a picture of what's considered the Upper Room in Jerusalem today. Now, very clearly, uh, this is not the same building that was there in Jesus' day. It's some building that's been built on top of it. But tradition says this is the location where the upper room happened. And, well, millions of people every year still go to that very spot. I've been to that spot twice with groups that we've led to Israel. And I've stood in that spot, prayed in that spot, and just remembered, again, the significance of Jesus' teaching that night, again, before his death. You know that final words matter a whole lot. Final words are oftentimes important words. They're powerful words. They're words that uh, are, are in some ways very important when they are brought to somebody else. Closing words can encapsulate themes and emotions and messages uh, that really transpire over a course of a life or the course of a story. And so, again, these final words are very important. And these are final words that Jesus is going to be giving. Let let me give you an example of some final words that might be really important words. You think about somebody getting ready to go off to war and he gathers his family together, he hugs his wife and his children and he says to his children, obey your mom while I'm gone. Final words that are very important. You think about bedside words with somebody who is near death and those words are very important words. They're usually something like, please know how much I love you take care of each other. And these final words are being given with great importance. You think about even an author, sometimes the final sentence or the final words that they give in a great story 
is encapsulating everything they've said and put it into one bite-sized little piece. And so final words, again, register as very important words. And the words that Jesus is going to be giving in starting in chapter 13 and then all the way stretching to 17 are these final words. Today we're going to start off with something that's very iconic. You've probably heard about it before, but it's the beginning of this whole time. They're not ready to eat the meal yet, but there's something that happens before the eating of the meal, and Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. I'm in chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 1, and this is the way that John records that night. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from, the, from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will afterward, afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed them, and when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, if I then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them." Lord, as we open your word in these next number of weeks, and we are in this important declaration that you made not just to your disciples around that table, but to all disciples that would live after that, we tune in right now. We want, over the next weeks, our ears to be very clear and astute and ready to gain from you what you say is important for our lives And so as we enter into this story today, you washing your disciples' feet, you teach us what we need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to put your focus today upon the first line of this famous story. It's not one I necessarily have seen, I think, before, but this is the very first line, 
It says, for Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And so love seems to be a very operative part of this entire story. And what I think John is doing is he's demonstrating this is the depth of Jesus' love. This is the way that Jesus loved. And that's what he's doing with this opening section is telling us about the very love of Jesus. Today, actually, I think love is oftentimes very misunderstood. Love is considered more or less just a feeling that I have or an emotion that I have. Let me give you an example of that. A number of years ago, it started to become very common in a marriage service for people to say, I no longer uh, bear myself to you or pledge myself to you for as long as we both may live. But those words got changed to, I'm going to do this as long as we both may love. And so love was being you know, exchanged for live. And what they were saying with that is that I maybe have a feeling of love for you right now, but if I don't have that feeling of love for you, then I'm no longer bound to be a servant to you. I'm no longer bound to be faithful to you. And so it's just whether or not I love you that I will actually be with you in sickness and health in good and bad, and richer or poorer, till death do us part. That's only conditional upon me feeling that I actually love you. And of course, if that's the case, then <laughs> love can come and go very, very quickly, and it's no longer operative as any kind of an action. It's just a flimsy emotion on the inside of us. Love is much more than that with Jesus. It's much more than that with God. Love is really an action. And it's an action that demonstrates day in and day out how somebody is cherished, how somebody is special, how somebody is sacrificed for, and that is going to be characteristic of the love that we see with Jesus today. It's a love that we never can fathom. It's a love that we never really can completely understand, certainly can't completely duplicate. It's a love that's so deep in the way that it operates that we just stand back in awe of it and we can't believe it's a love that's been extended to all of us. Today, I want to explore the way Jesus loves. And I want to explore that using five ways that Jesus loves from this passage today in order that we would better appreciate Jesus' love, accept Jesus' love, operate out of Jesus' love, And so we're coming back to the source here again of John to say, how is it that Jesus loves? What makes his love stand apart from other kinds of love in our world today? And that's what we're going to explore. All right. The first thing I'd like for you to see is that Jesus loves through evil. Jesus loves through evil. Jesus at this moment knew that there was one person that was going to betray him, Judas Iscariot. He, he knew because Jesus could even see that he'd already gone to the Pharisees. He'd already taken the silver. He was getting ready to betray Jesus that very night. And Jesus washed the feet even of Judas Iscariot. I, I mean, I, I think that's pretty amazing. Because if you knew that somebody was going to betray you, you knew somebody was not going to be faithful to you, I'm I'm guessing that you wouldn't be doing that with them. 
I, you know, I wouldn't. I'd be thinking, wow, man, how do I protect myself from this person? How do I distance myself from this person? How do I warn others about this person? And so I'm not going to come and wash that person's feet. On the contrary, I'm, I'm going to be doing all that I can to try to get away from that person. And yet Jesus is one who has a love that will even wash the feet of Judas Iscariot. And what I want you to know is that Jesus is loving through evil. He, he, through the evil that was done to him, he is going to continue to love through that. And I'm not saying that Jesus is loving in spite of that. He's loving literally through that. Let, let me explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus is not seeing that evil over there and saying, well, I guess I see that. I'll counter it. Jesus is saying, I see that over there, and I'm actually going to use that for redemptive purposes. I'm going to use that so that the glory of God can be shown for how big it really is. Denise and I are, as many of you know, um, are individuals who were at ground zero for Columbine High School and its tragedy of its shooting back in 1999. We will always uh, remember the events surrounding that. We had one son uh, of the church who was uh, killed, uh, a, a young man who was killed in the church, and he w- had a memorial service that was at our church. We had three others who were killed that day that also had memorial services at our church. So we were well aware of all the events that happened that day, and we felt the weight of those, uh, those things that transpired. One of the guys that came to speak really made the point to us that Jesus was working, God was working through the evil that day, not just in spite of that. And what he meant by that was that somehow even God can make the incident as bad and as dastardly and as evil as it was somehow come and be used for redemptive purposes. And you know what? We saw that over the next number of months and years. We saw individuals that came to know Christ as a result of Columbine. We saw individuals that came to church as a result of Columbine. We saw greater unity among all the churches as a result of Columbine. It wasn't God being caught by surprise and saying, well, I guess I'm going to do something, even though that all happened. No, he sees this happening. He's saying, even this I'm going to be using for redemptive purposes. That's the nature of the love of God, is that God is even willing to wash the feet of Judas Iscariot, and he's never caught off guard, and he's never going to say, you know, boy, I'm really sorry that happened because I don't know what to do with that. No, he's going to be using even the evil for his purposes, and it's going to be used again for the glory of God. So that's number one. Number two, he is loving knowing his origin. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so Jesus is very aware that he has come from the presence of the Father. He is going back to the presence of the Father and back into the position of his relationship with the Father. And it's in light of this that he understands his place at that moment. He understands his place. He understands who he is. He has a grip on where he's come from and where he's going. And this is what's going to ground Jesus and allow him to go and actually suffer, even death on a cross, is that he knows who he is, where he's come from, and where he's going. This is very, very easy for us to forget. 
very easy for us to forget that if we've trusted Christ as Savior, we now have a new identity. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a gift. We've been given the promise, again, of our uh, forgiveness of sin. We've been given the promise that Jesus is coming and is going to take us home. And all of these things are part of our identity. And it's easy to forget that and to roll back into the idea that we have an identity with the world more than we have an identity with, uh, with God and with Christ. And that is something, again, that can happen very easily with us, but that never happened with Jesus. Jesus was always anchored down on who he was, where he had come from, where he was going, and that's what he lived out of perpetually, and this is the nature of the love that he's able to give. It's a very grounded love. Billy Graham, in the year 2000, was invited to... Uh, a, a church in which they said, hey, we want to honor you, Dr. Graham, and we're going to invite many, many civic leaders to come. Billy Graham is uh, from Charlotte, and so he's a favored son. And so again, they had this wonderful event that they were going to host for him. Well, he had a little reluctance to do that because he was suffering from Parkinson's disease. And so he was like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. They said, you don't need to speak at all. Just come. We want to love on you. We want to appreciate you. So he went to the luncheon and, you know, thousands of people are there for that, and they have all of these wonderful things to say about Billy Graham. He stands up at the podium, and uh, this is what he said that important day. He said, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist who this month was honored by Time Magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of each passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached for his vest pocket, but he couldn't find his ticket. So he reached for his other pocket. It wasn't there either. And so he looked in his briefcase, and he couldn't find it. And then he looked in his seat, and he couldn't find the ticket. And so the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets, and as he was ready to move on to the next car, he noticed that the great physicist was down on his hands and knees, looking under his seat, trying to find the ticket. The conductor rushed back to him and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't you know? We know who you are. We trust that you bought a ticket. You do not need to find that ticket. Einstein said to him, uh, young man, I, to I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> point taken. Billy Graham uses that very poignant moment, and this is what he says. See the suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My wife, my children, and my grandchildren Tell me that I have got a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be rather fastidious, and I could bet he was. So I went out, and I bought a new suit for this luncheon and for one other occasion. Do you know what that occasion is? This is the suit I will be buried in. But when you hear I'm dead... I do not want you to think about the suit I am wearing. I want you to remember 
this. I not only know who I am, but I know where I'm going. What great words from Billy Graham. And they're right out of this chapter, and they're right out of this section in which Jesus knows exactly who he is, his origin, where he's come from, where he's going, and this is what allows Jesus to have the depth of love that's so sacrificial. If we are faltering at all in our ability to love, this may be the very source of it, that we don't really completely understand who we are because that gives tremendous power and capacity to love. Third, Jesus' love is condescending. And immediately you might say, whoa, I didn't know Jesus was about putting people down, if that's what you're claiming, or he's about patronizing. And I don't mean that at all. That's not what I mean by Jesus' love is condescending. What I mean by that is Jesus willingly lowers himself. If we say Jesus is condescended, then that's what we mean. Jesus has willfully, at his own discretion, lowered himself. And that's what we mean when we say condescending. There is a single image in this chapter that epitomizes that to the hilt. And that single image is the towel. Jesus willingly takes on the towel of a servant. This is a passage that we need to rehearse again because there's some things going on in this passage that are societal that we don't really understand. And in order to understand this passage, we got to understand historically and from a societal standpoint how this all works. Let's rehearse again. If you're coming to the home of somebody else, what typically happens? You enter at the door and there's somebody that's a slave or a servant that meets you there. They take your sandals off and they immediately wash your feet. And they do that for a couple of important reasons. Number one, everybody's walking in sandals on dirty dirt roads. And so again, everybody's feet are abundantly dirty. And so this is a way of serving individuals who come into your home. But let's face it, it's also a way of keeping your home cleaner. If people have clean, fresh feet when they come in, then your house is not going to get trashed. And so this was an a ancient Middle Eastern way of welcoming people, but also taking care of your home. For whatever reason that night, as the disciples come to the upper room, there's no servant there. Now, I think it's because, again, they borrowed that home, and the people just completely vacated it, and they said, hey, it's yours for the night. And so they just completely departed and said, you know, hey, you and your disciples will take care of things. And nobody really thought through, hey, there's not going to be anybody standing at the door to wash feet. Now, at this point, the disciples, they're saying, thinking to each other, who's the greatest, right? Jesus is about ready to set up a big kingdom. I want to be at his right hand and another at his left. I mean, we're going to be important people, and that's what they're thinking. And so nobody is taking the role of servant. Nobody's taking the role of actually going to wash individuals' feet. And so guess who does that? Jesus is the one who does that, the one who... Is, is least probably n n needing to do that or is required to do that is the one who steps into the place to be able to do that. And Jesus takes on the role of servant. Jesus condescends. He puts himself low on purpose. Here's what I want you to think about for just a second. Can you imagine President Biden 
or former President Trump washing somebody else's feet. I cannot. And I think that most presidents would say that is well beneath me. It's beneath my station and my office. That's for a servant. It's not for a president. Or they might say it's for a senator, not a president, right? I mean, it's for somebody else, but I know it's not for me. And that's not what Jesus epitomizes. Jesus purposefully is willing to be humiliated in that moment and willing to take a role that is not his rightful role, but it's the role that he's willing to take on for the sake of the disciples. Fourth, Jesus' love is cleansing. Jesus' love is cleansing. Peter was very uncomfortable with what was happening right now. And as Jesus is making his way around and everybody is getting their feet washed, Peter is just on the inside becoming increasingly uncomfortable. And Jesus arrives at his spot and he says, you shall never wash my feet. And I've got a fantastic painting that I have enjoyed over so many years. Here's the painting. And the painting is by uh, Ford Maddox Brown, painted in 1876. And you can see Peter there kind of letting his feet be washed, but on the inside is just excruciating like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And the reason this is all coming down like this is because, again, Peter's like, Jesus, don't you know? This, this is not what, uh, you know, not what a king should be doing at all. You're taking a role that's way beneath you. You should not be taking this on right now. Stop. And everything in him is just begging Jesus, don't do this. And this is why, again, his fingers are crossed, and he's like, man, if I have to, I'm going to submit to this. And Jesus tells him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. So again, he goes to the opposite extreme. Well, if you're going to wash me, wash my head and my hands too. Like, hey, all the way, let's go. Jesus says, no, 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 you misunderstand. You, you, You don't need all that. He says, you're clean already, except for one of you. You're clean already, except for one of you. And what he's saying is that if you are my follower, you have received a cleansing that's from me that's well beyond the washing of any feet. The cleansing you've received from me is a cleansing from the consequence of your sin. It's a cleansing of a guilty conscience. It's a a character cleansing that's making a renewal on the inside of you. And all of these things are the cleansing power that I have given and that you are the recipients of. And so again, this washing of the feet, well, that's just needed for today. And, And it's gonna be something that you need in order to be able to carry on this meeting. But the deeper cleansing is what's already happened on the inside of you. Of course, he says, there's one of you that has not been cleansed. And that one of you that's not been cleansed is a reference again, even John even says so, to Judas Iscariot. And so Judas Iscariot is this individual, again, one of Jesus' own disciples. He's seen Jesus in action. He's been a part of all of the other healings. He's been a part of all the teaching. But somehow, Judas Iscariot doesn't have a faith that's real. Judas Iscariot somehow is an individual who misses the greatest person who's ever existed right before him And he's an individual that doesn't have a real or an active faith. And so that cleansing is not extending to him. There is a book called Start With Why 
Some of you know the title of, excuse me, the author of that title. His name is Simon Sinek. And this was a book that he wrote a, a number of years ago, again, about asking why, not just what. And he gives a story in his book about detergent. And he says that detergent makers years ago all came out and started saying, we make clothing that gets whites whiter and brights brighter. And you can remember where that happened about that era. And what they did was they did character interviews with individuals or, or studies, uh, what am I saying, group, group studies, where they talked to people again about what they wanted in a detergent. And that's what people said. We want clothes that are clean and we want whites whiter and brights brighter. And so they all marketed around that and they tried to convince consumers that they had additives in their detergent that would do that, that would make whites whiter and brights brighter. Cynic says the only problem was they really didn't get down to why people wanted that. And he says, if you want to study that a little bit further, you go with an anthropologist who actually watches people in action. And he said, this is what anthropologists recognized. Anthropologists recognized that when people took clothing out of the dryer, they did not take that clothing to the light and hold it up to make sure that it was brighter and whiter. Nobody did that. What was the very first thing that people did as they took clothing out of the dryer? They smelled it. They put it up and they smelled it. And they were smelling it to say, do I sense that again that this is clean? I take that example to say to you, God has said... You're clean. If you're in me, you're clean. Now, I hope you smell clean too, but on the inside, Jesus is saying to you something that is revolutionary in love. I actually have the capacity to clean you. And you can be assured that when it comes to relationship with Father, that is completed through the love of Jesus. All right, there's one more thing I want you to see. Fifth, Jesus loved as teacher and Lord. And this is the very verse that Casey read for us earlier today. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says, you are exactly right, I am uh, your teacher and your Lord. In other words, I'm your rabbi, I'm your master. I am the one who is above you. But in that statement, he's not trying to say, and so, hey, Peter, hey, disciples, you know, I'm just basically just like you. He's saying, no, no, I am set apart from you, but I want to draw some new ways that you understand leadership. And leadership is not just about the person who stays on high and directs everybody else. The, the, the leader is oftentimes the guy that's getting down into the trenches and doing the difficult work. And so Jesus is redefining what a master looks like and saying, there is no work that is beneath me. The greatest leader, Jesus Christ, worked in humility and service to others and therefore, no Christian, regardless of status or title or role or reputation, has the right to refuse sacrificial service. Because to do so would be to say, 
in a very obviously absurd way, I don't need to do that because that's beneath me or I'm above that. And we have as an example somebody in Jesus who says, there is no work that is below me. And as a result, there is no work that is below you. As we come to the close today of the upper room discourse, we have been confronted with the love of Jesus, the depth of the love of Jesus, the remarkable love of Jesus, the completely undeserved love of Jesus. And again, that is astounding to us. Today, I want to do two things as we close. The first thing I'd like to do is extend the invitation for some here who have never clearly said, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is the one I am following. We just talked about being clean in this passage. And when you're clean, you're an individual who knows that Jesus has forgiven your sin. Jesus has deposited new life inside of you. And so now new appetites are emerging from your life. You almost can't help it. It's not like you're trying to manufacture that, but something new is now on the inside and suddenly you have desires you didn't have before, like a desire to maybe study the scriptures, a desire to pray, a desire to be with God's people, many other things. Maybe you suddenly have a desire to learn how to serve others and that wasn't there before because again, God has planted this new life on the inside of you. I'm wondering if there's somebody here today that hasn't, previous to today, said I want Jesus as my Savior because I want to be that clean. I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a moment. The second thing I want to talk about is for all of us, if we are taking in today the tremendous love of God as expressed through Jesus, what do we do with that? The very first thing we do to that with that is we stand in awe and we're thankful for that. We undeserved people as we are have a God that's poured out that depth of love for us. That's remarkable. We stand back and we say how thankful we are for that. The second thing we do with that is we respond to that. We say yes to that. We enter into that. We receive that very willingly and we respond to others with that kind of love that's been given to us. The greatest of all commandments, love God, love others. And if that kind of love has been poured on the inside of us, we now have capacity to give that to others. Jesus loves more deeply and profoundly than anybody who has ever lived. And so today we appreciate that love and today we receive and we respond to that love. Join me in prayer right now. Father, I'm thinking about individuals who are here with us and for the first time they're perhaps saying, today's my day. Today, I am hearing the word of God. I'm hearing the invitation of Jesus. I wish to be clean. I wish to be forgiven of my sin, and I wish to have new life imparted to me. And so I am trusting Jesus as my Savior. What a remarkable day. Rejoicing even in heaven over those kinds of steps. Thank you for that right now. For all of us today, Lord, we stand back in awe of you with grateful hearts. We appreciate you, and we thank you for the love that is such a deep and durable love that has been expressed to us. Thank you for your goodness. We respond today with thankful hearts 
and with hearts that are saying, work that kind of love into us. We wish to be faithful followers of Jesus. And we say this in the name of Jesus, our matchless Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.